ready for Monster Jam! And welcome to a brand new conversation. Glad to have you joining us here on the Scott Douglas Media Channel on Twitch.tv. As uh, most of you know, and if you don't know, we'll tell you, every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday night, we are live at 8 o'clock uh, with a brand new conversation. Uh, this Tonight's guest, really, I could have had on you know any night because you know we have the Tuesday Spotlight. He certainly would have fit there. Uh, with the stories he's going to tell tonight, he would have been a great throwback Thursday guest. But I, I really wanted to have him on tonight when we do the live entertainment industry insider because he has been in so many different forms of pro sports, college sports and live entertainment and live events. And uh, not only in front of the camera and on the stage, as most of you are aware of, but a lot of behind the scenes work as well. So he's a perfect guest for our Wednesday industry insider. And let's bring him in now. Chad Fortune. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Scott. It's great to hear your voice again. Uh, it's, a, it's great to see you. And uh, I'll just start with a personal thing. I'd mentioned it to you earlier when we have tested to make sure everything worked, but it was so cool to, uh, see everything they did for us uh, during the Hall of Fame induction ceremony down in Orlando this weekend. But but as as expected, your messages uh, both from me and for Dennis had that certain Chad Fortune flair, and everybody really enjoyed them. So thanks again for doing that. Uh, no problem. And I think you know we should start with this conversation as uh, the Scott Douglas. Who's going to interview you? Because this you are a Hall of Famer now. They can never take this away. Scott Douglas Hall of Fame. What a great thing. I, it's got a great sound. I got to admit, I love it. And I love Dennis's speech when he, he uh, kept rolling on a little bit longer than he had originally planned. And a couple of times he said the words, it's only going to happen once in my life. So I'm going to you know, get everything in here that I wanted to. But yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's pretty awesome. Just as an overview, since we're starting there and then we're going to go a lot of places during this call, you as somebody being in the industry for so long, um, I, I you know, I know how I felt, but I'm just wondering, as, as someone who was as competitive as you were for years, to hear that Monster Jam was forming a, a Hall of Fame that would be exclusive to Monster Jam. We know there's an International Monster Truck Hall of Fame, which is great and really honors all the legacy of, of Monster Truck. But this is specific to Monster Jam. I wonder what your thoughts were when you heard that, that there's going to be a, and there now is a Monster Jam Hall of Fame. Well, how exciting it was. You know, I mean, the, the, the credibility, the legacy of what, where we first started this. So you remember the World Finals was just a bunch of us hanging out in Las Vegas. And uh, the first World Finals award ceremony banquet was held at the Race Rock Cafe. And they did yep. it for us for a favor. Uh, we just we just occupied a back room. There was no TVs. There was nothing. Maybe there was somebody holding a video camera. But now as we go through the years, how big you know, Orlando was as an event, uh, all these Florida Tampas, um, the Indianapolises, the Atlanta Georgias and selling out. And now they're selling out multiple things. That, but you and I, uh, you know, ha have seen it all from the very, very beginning. And that's when, when I kind of gave my little spiel to you is that you were always the voice. You were always the, the, the face because we're in the truck and the camera's on you or you're out in the middle of the field you know, as we're climbing out, um, you had to occupy the time as we do and, and set up the drama. Uh, all these things is what I was thinking about, you know, when this was uh, taking place and said, you know, Dennis, of course, and then Scott Douglas, of course. But you, Scott, helped make us look great, look like superstars, made me look like a superhero. 
Well, it was a blast, and you played the role well, by the way. <laughs> and of course, <laughs> having trucks like you did, and we'll get to the Monster Jam part in a little bit. I, I did see on social media uh, already Kathy Lowe and the, the Lowe family said, tell Superman hi for us. So they don't even call you Chad. They call you Superman still to this day. Yeah, that's kinda, yeah it's kind of cool with all those personas you've had. Yeah, and I'm getting, you know, still get fan mail. Um, or, or just people will come out and just say, hey, Superman, or hey, Captain America. And it just means that maybe I made a little bit of an impact and, and made some difference in, out there in Monster Jam. Yeah, and uh, let's go ahead. And what I like to do on, on, on these shows is really be able, and that's why I love the, the, the concept of this when we came up with it, is the idea of the long-form interview, not having to worry about short sound bites or fitting into a TV time frame. And we can go a lot of places, and that's what I like to do is really tell the stories of amazing people who've had amazing careers. And so with you, I'd like to just go all the way back. So just take me back to childhood, you know, what part of the country you were in, where you grew up, and, you know, how, what you were like as a kid and the things you like to do. So, well, as far back as Val Valparaiso, Indiana, just a country boy, um, you know, suburb. You do, Chicago is a long way away, an hour away, right? But it's still a long way for us. Um, Growing up in the cornfields, uh, grew up playing basketball because you had to, football and basketball and baseball in the summers. Um, we lived out in the woods, so I had motorcycles and some go-karts and stuff. And we would build our own bicycles, um, go out to the junkyard and find some old frame or something fits and, and build these bicycles and literally just jump them, go down the hill and jump into this big lake. We'd make our own lake and jump them into the lakes. And there were some, I remember there was old swans. These people had some swans and um, some mean old ducks. So we would jump out there about 15 feet into the middle of a lake of a, of a bike that we just built out of nothing. Um, and then had to drag the bike back before the swans and the nasty ducks would come and try and nip at you. So um, it was just full of adventures. Um, wars out in the pits, we call them, where our motor, the motorcycle pits and the bicycles um, where we'd ride and we'd have our wars out there, we'd camp, and it was just a fun way of growing up. Yeah, and, and you know that that's uh, you know one of those things when you when you have those opportunities to add to it. You talk a, a lot about the sports where I'm assuming, and I shouldn't assume, but um, I, I will for for your purposes, as athletic as you are, that uh, there wasn't an off season. You were going to play. Uh, did you play basketball, baseball, and everything else too? Along, well, obviously, we know you played football. Yeah, exactly in that order. Um, I had two best friends, and they were athletes too, and they were the best athletes, and I was lucky to be around them. But we would ride um, and go. We'd play basketball in basketball season. We'd play football in football seasons, pickup games right in the in the yards and, and bring everybody out. And baseball was in summer season too. Um, but this, the old story about, you know, walking through snow and miles in it, we did ride our bikes um probably 15 miles to the high school to play three hours of open gym and the basketball um and just loving it then ride the bikes back and you're cramping up because you're dehydrated and just done and we do that all throughout the summers playing um, a lot of uh, a lot of leagues i mean uh, i guess they're pop warner these days there were a lot of different names for for organized not not necessarily in school but organized type of football leagues. What kind of leagues did you play in? Or did you play in school all the time? Yeah, yeah. Pop Warner. Um, it, it's a funny story about that. We played Pop Warner uh, 
you know, mom and dad had to come up with some money so they could get me into the Pop Warner. The one day that I skipped practice, um, as just a kid, whatever, like 11 years old or something like that. One day I skipped practice. Um, I went out and played a pickup game of football in the backyard and was pushed behind and broke my collarbone. And so that kind of ended that. But, you know, you don't get hurt when you're out, got all the pads on. You're out messing around in the backyard and breaking the collarbone. But, yeah, the little leagues, I mean, the little league baseball, you didn't have uniforms. You had a T-shirt that was sponsored by the Dairy Queen. Um, but it was all a blast to us. That's all we did was just sports and then run out in the, in the pits and, and ride dirt bikes. You know, um, and I want to make sure I'm not sounding like I'm, I'm knocking anybody today or, or parenting today or things like that. And, and there is a lot more known you know, about injuries and about safety. But, and of course I'm, I'm older than you, but having some of the similar experiences, you know, the, it was just the group of guys, whoever was there and a couple of girls would play every now and then. And, uh, you know, my sister jump in there, but you, you'd take the football and you'd go down and nobody cared if you were on school property when school wasn't in session, you'd go out and find the grass field, but there were no pads. There were no helmets. You, and it was tackle football. We weren't playing touch football. And I'm assuming that's what you were doing out in the field too. It really was. And even if you did have pads on, they were just some janky old pads laying around. They were probably more dangerous wearing that than it was if you were just didn't have anything on. But yeah, it was tackled roughneck. Um, you know, you knew who the bullies were and you knew who was really fast and you know who you wanted to split up the teams with. Um, yeah, if you had a concussion, you didn't know about it because you just had a headache and went back out or if uh, you sprained an ankle, your mom just rolled it up in tape, and then you went back out and played. Yeah, what was the old term? Just rub some dirt on it and get back in here, you know? And uh, <laughs> yeah, that's what we did. Um, I'm wondering if you were always a big guy, or did you have a growth spurt at some point? Because you're about 6'4", six, 6'5", six, right? Right now I'm 6'6". Six, well, six, six. I might be six, after six, Monster, okay. Jam. Monster Jam kicked me down about 6'5", I think. <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, I was around, my best friends all were at the same height and same weight all through school. It was my junior in high school. I started to go a little bit. I wasn't uh, a guard anymore. I got to be a power forward, um, in high school. Um, and I was a wide receiver in, in high school as well. It wasn't until I went to college where they packed me up at the training table and I gained like 30 pounds, natural 30 pounds, just because I had to eat and they were working us out like crazy uh, high intensity workouts but uh my my best friends we were all the same height and same weight all through school so when you're in high school as a senior and colleges are looking at you um we, we, we still had room to grow or were you at that six 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 point at that point at in college well it's, i think i did i think i might have grown another inch or two um but the weight, the weight started to come on because it was just really important to me playing, moving to tight end, that yeah. it had the weight to take on the defensive ends, outside linebackers, that kind of thing. And then, but always have the speed to catch and run and be a fullback. So, so you were a wide receiver in high school, but but they were already probably because of your height already thinking tight end. For not sure. a lot of six, not, not a lot of six six wide receivers. But there are a lot of no. six six tight ends. Well, Howard Schnellenberger, he ran the pass offense, right? Coming from the Dolphins, the '72 Dolphins, and Miami uh, uh, Hurricane offense, where he won the national championship. 
So when they saw me, they said right away, you're putting on weight. We're putting you as a tight end and you'll be a running fullback, basically. You catch the ball, you block, and then you catch the ball and you run it like a fullback. You blow through people. You mentioned Howard Snellenberger, and of course, I'm from the Louisville area, as you're well aware. Um, Louisville football, you know, was just starting to try to make some noise, and they've ended up turning out some pretty good teams, and uh, hello, Lamar Jackson. But um, at, at that point, you know, Howard kind of shocks the world when he comes in and takes the job. First of all, he's a big name to come in and take the University of Louisville job, although he had Lee Corso, and they'd had some other, uh, you know, pretty, pretty good-name coaches. But Howard comes in and and he talks about uh, a desire to win a national championship, and everybody kind of looked around and said, "Wait a minute, do you know you're at Louisville?" But did he did he get you to buy in on it? You guys buying in on all that? Oh, with everything I had, I was going Big Ten. Uh, being from the Midwest, and there it was Illinois, Michigan State. Um, I did have an adventure spurt. I wanted to go as far out as USC or even LSU. Wow. Um, but uh, old Howard Schnellenberger, man, he, he came into my living room, uh, talked did to my did, parents. Did he have the pipe going while, while he was out there with you? Known for that sure pipe. Did. Sure did. He had a driver drive him in the middle of the winter, right? So he had a driver come in, and then it was always Schnellenberger's deal anyways, that he would be announced, and then he would come in. So the driver, which was one of the assistant coaches, came in, knocked on the door, and said, oh, Coach Snellenberger's out in the car. He's ready to come in. Okay. So this whole thing, he's got his presence. He's sitting there. My mom and dad are are there with me and gives me the whole spiel. He throws me the 72 Dolphins uh, Super Bowl ring. Then he throws me the Miami Hurricanes National Championship ring. Goes, I'm going to make sure that you get one of these. Um, Promised my mom and dad that I graduate, and I was hooked. Um, at that time, all I wanted to do was play. I wanted to play quickly my first year. Um, and he promised that he was going to build this team into a, you know, a national championship. Actually said that the only variable was time. Um, as it, as it turns out that within my class, so you get a five-year scholarship to play four. my class, the fifth year beat Alabama in the, um, Fiesta Bowl. But the class before me, um, going to Louisville, was like we were ranked. And it was really, I was mine and Jay Gruden. Jay Gruden was the year before me. His class was the first recruiting season for Howard Schnellenberger. But the year that year was really Playboy's 13 worst teams. And then we wow. went from there all the way in five years to rank number 13 and then beat uh, uh, Alabama in the Fiesta Bowl. But the blood, sweat, and tears on that. We had three-day practices. We got we got beat on a Saturday game. We practiced on Sunday. They were called the Toilet Bowl. Um, <laughs> it was rough. Yeah, and he, you know he had he had a, a reputation, and you know uh, you know things happen and move on. He, he said it was just a matter of time, and the Louisville t- team has continued to be competitive. And you know who knows that he had he not taken other opportunities and moved on, what he had done there, and because even at Miami. The belief is, had he not taken that, uh, uh, what was the USFL job that, that never even came about, and uh, he was already already gone, and I guess Jimmy Johnson had already been hired. But, um, you know, who knows how many championships he'd have won at Miami if he'd have stayed there. Uh, what a great coach. Yeah, unbelievable. I mean, he's a protege of Paul Bear Bryant, right? And it's the same thing. We, If you see the movie 
uh, the old time movie, uh, the Junction. I live that as well. He took us out of Louisville to, you know, maybe Shelby campus. It's like, it's the campus outside of Louisville where away from people, dorm rooms were locked down and he just literally just beat us to death, ran and we, we replaced and, you know, everybody wanted to be personal. So there was a lot of people. Bryant, this was exactly how Schnellberger ran his stuff. So, so, um, Jay Gruden, you played with him, but he was a year ahead of you. Is that right? Yeah, he was, um, he was the year before me. He didn't get redshirted either. So he was a four year senior when he left. And so your last year, was it Browning Nagel? Was that, did you play with him? Cause that yeah, was a Brown. pretty, pretty daggone good quarterback too. And the plan yeah, the NFL some. Yeah. Jeff Brown was his backup at the time. <laughs> and another one that became Came pretty dang on good quarterback. So uh, I think I, I know I told you this story, but I'll tell it on the show. So uh, so years later, doing the Monster Jam thing, and uh, the lovely people at Delta, because I flew with them so much, decided to move me up in the first class on a flight. Don't even remember where I'm going, but sure enough, <laughs> right across the aisle from me is John Gruden, now the coach of the Raiders, but then the uh, ESPN commentator, the ESPN uh, uh, color analyst. And I mean, this guy's sitting there, and he's got piles of paper and you know and he's going he's prepping for his game so i didn't want to you know be the the, the fanboy or you know bother let the man enjoy his you know his first class ride there and but as we're getting off and, and you know he's, he's smiling and friend he's a friendly guy anyway so i introduced myself and and i mentioned mentioned uh i said yeah your uh your uh your your brother's tight end works for us I said, wait, so i said well, we, we had to talk in monster jam the rest of the time but uh yeah that, that was pretty cool so you you played with some pretty good quarterbacks and and uh, obviously that would then get you at least some opportunities in the National Football League. Yeah, um, and in the back uh, up to about John too is the John was just uh, my freshman year. He was at um, Tennessee, and he was a graduate assistant there, assistant coach. And um, we played there, and I had my first college touchdown in, in Tennessee in front of ninety-five thousand people. And uh, I remember seeing John or talking to John. He was just a character way back then, too, right? And razzing you and playing around. So it was uh, all these memories now kind of keep flooding back, you know, connecting the dots. 95,000 people. That, that, that's, a, that's a heck of a way to catch your first, uh, your first touchdown pass. Um, what, a couple more things about college, I guess actually before we go to, go to pro football. But So you had all these dreams and some of these big places that you were thinking about. Um, and Howard convinced you to come to Louisville. It's really not a bad place when you think about it. Uh, and again, I'm talking from experience. I haven't spent so much of my life in this area. Um, you know, come out of Alparaiso, Indiana. You talk about a country boy and all that. Louisville's got some big city to it, but it's 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 not you know it's not New York. It's not Chicago, and it's not far to get out of the city and, and find some you know you can find some cool lakes and some cool uh, all kinds of things down down around here. So for you, how did you enjoy the experience of coming to Louisville out of Northern Indiana? Man, I can't even tell you. At the time, I'm thinking that I hated it, but I really loved it. Um, again, I'm Midwest kid from Indiana. I, I moved to go to Louisville. It's the South. Um, Schnellenberger's recruited the South side of Miami, and then back then you had we could have a, a, a football dorm, 
That means all the football players can be in one dorm. And we were literally locked in there with room checks, um, uh, fire alarms on the outside. So we couldn't get out after 11 o'clock. Um, so now you take a bunch of football players from all over the place. And it was, legit, it was just craziness. But it was one of the most, there's fights going on here and people trying to study. And it was just a rest. It was one of the best times of my entire life. Um, <laughs> it really was. There was fighting and there was all kinds of stuff. But, but then, you know, it had its perks too. I mean, Schnellberger was the man around there. So we had a great football complex. We were... During the Kentucky Derby, we we were security um, for uh, you know a million dollar row. So I'm I'm uh, uh, picking up Steinbrenner um, from the airport and taking him to his seats up in at the Derby on Million Dollar Row, and um, you know people all dressed up in their Derby outfits. It's just a blast. And you have Joe Namath coming in, and Paul Horning, who's a local and one of um, uh, Schnellenberger's uh, uh, old mates. They they grew up in Louisville, so he was always in and out of there. Um, I can't even tell you. Let's say to Joe. I mean, it was always something going on that was big, and and coach would always have me catching passes from these guys. Hey, uh, let you know, get uh, Joe. We'll see if Broadway joke and uh, still hit the target and have me, you know, play catch with him. Wow, what a story! And yeah, I, I, that's that's one I hadn't heard before. Didn't realize that's that's a premium gig to get to be security up there on Millionaires Row for the Kentucky Derby, and uh, you know, not, not just athletes, you know, and mega movie stars, and 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 yeah. you know, and of course anybody who's got the you know the huge wallet can get up there. But that's about it. Not, the average Joe isn't going up there, but Chad Fortune's been there. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we're we're gonna have a whole bunch more with Chad Fortune, as you fans know. Um, there's a lot to cover with this man. I'm a welcome back to the conversation. Our Wednesday night entertainment industry insider, sports and live events and everything else is Chad Fortune and Chad's with us. We kind of talked a lot about college, and of course, I maybe went a little longer there because I have a uh, you know in this area in a long time uh, University of Louisville fan as well as a University of Kentucky fan. I like them all. I don't I don't get into the rivalry part of that, but if you're from this area, you know most people have to pick blue or red. I I don't go there, but really uh, enjoyed talking about the University of Louisville and Howard Schnellenberger, who I think uh, I've always thought was one of the one of the greatest coaches ever, and uh, some cool names there. Now we found out that Joe Namath and Paul Horning threw passes uh, at the Kentucky Derby to to Chad Fortune. We'll see what else we can find out as we move forward. So you graduate from college again. You got pro size. Um, you, you had some pretty good years, um, you know, and uh, some, some some decent numbers. Like last year, you caught four touchdown passes and had some uh, a decent amount of uh, yardage. So n- now you're trying to get on in the National Football League, and and you got some opportunities, right? I mean, you didn't have a long career there, but you you hooked on with a few teams. Uh, what do you remember about the NFL experience? Well, that's tough to get in that that door. Yeah, I mean, it was tough, and I don't know if I realized how tough it was. I mean. Again, I was a four-year senior, so I can't can't stress how much even that one year being a fifth year, how much more you would mature. But I'm I'm, a, I'm 22 years old and I'm launched into the the NFL, where there are grown men out there making millions of dollars and they want to keep their job and uh, and win championships. And I'm out there, um, and, and I was you know I felt like I was pretty invincible. Um, uh, six foot six, 255, 260 pound tight end. 
I was uh, at the combine ranked number five and then had some injuries playing my senior year, I had some injuries and there was some scar tissue on my Achilles that was torn and I played anyways. Um, so one of the teams kind of gave me a black mark and it was kind of like into the NFL, but still kind of just making my way. So I had a, a skip like most of us do. Um, you hear about the Barry Sanders and the, you know, the superstar type, type guys that are sticking around for longer careers, but most of them are just very short in and out and skipping around the league, trying to find a home where they fit. Um, as you know, there's not very many positions and there's a lot of great athletes coming out of college every year. So the key is to keep, keep the job. So, uh, but it was great. I mean, I was in Indianapolis and Miami, uh, with Don Shula and Duper and Clayton and, um, those type of guys, Crass Jensen, Jensen was there. And then from there I was in, uh, Philadelphia with Randall Cunningham and, and uh, Keith Byers and Andre wow. Waters. So, uh, and then, you know, skipping into Washington uh, after they had just won the uh, uh, Super Bowl and Joe Gibbs. I mean, what a talent there. You, you can't grasp his offense. Um, him and Mark Rippon, you know, had this mesh and just, they would call plays. They would just morph into different plays, you know, one. You know, the play called in the huddle, which had a bunch of options. But on the way to the line, a, a different play was called. On the line, another play was called. And when the ball is snapped, snap, depending on where the defense goes, another play is, you know, adjusted. It was mind-blowing, and it was something you had to learn. Uh, from there, to, to go into Chicago, uh, which was Mike Ditka's last year, and you know, what a great talent he was. And um, uh, in between all this, so the fall seasons were NFL, but me being in my rookie years and to get more playing time, they send me to NFL Europe. Yeah, um, I remember that. Yep. I played, played in Frankfurt in the Springs to get more playing time. We played 10 games. And, uh, you know, Kurt Warner was there. And, you know, it's a bunch of good, really good big studs. It's like playing all-star games. Um, but you got to see the world. That was my first glimpse of, uh, well, coming out of Louisville, I played in an all-star game uh, in J Tokyo, Japan, and then we played Syracuse in the Tokyo uh, Coca-Cola Bowl in Tokyo. So that was my first out of the country. And then being able to go into the NFL, we'd play in the American Leagues um, in Wembley Stadium, um, hollow ground there. And then, you know, of course, in the World League, I was station in Frankfurt, Germany, which was an incredible place to play. Um, crowds were enormous and just just loved it, um, the American football style. So what jam-packed four years of playing football, spring, fall, spring, fall, I was just beat <laughs> um, and, and had some injuries coming out. But what, a, what an experience. I mean, I can't, can't uh, say how thankful and blessed for that. You know, the, uh, the bowl games and all, you, you have to go to Japan. And I know, you know, the multiple times I've been able to go to Japan, that's an amazing experience. But, uh, you know, those are, are more in and out. They give you some time, uh, you know, before COVID days. You actually, you know, had like a week around a bowl game where you get to do a lot of things and see a lot of things. But then you get this Frankfurt experience. 
And so you're over there for a long time. And, and I would assume that really uh, was the first taste of really learning and enjoying international. I know you always did in Monster Jam, loved all those uh, trips that we took. But, but there you were actually living there for a short period of time. Now, that must have been a really, really neat experience culturally for you. Yeah, it was fantastic. And even with the bowl games, I mean, the host countries are really great about giving you like the VIP treatment. So we were able to, even in the Japan bowls, go up into the, the mountains and go, you know, go to the temples. And, and you know, it was, it was pretty amazing to see um, at that level uh, in a kind of a VIP. But yes, in Germany and in, you know, being able to travel in through Spain, again, as a kid, basically trying to figure out where everything is, having some history lessons, but being able to see it firsthand was pretty amazing. And again, you're going out with the boys trying to figure out what's what. And I remember getting on the Rhine River. I don't know if we even had time to do that when our International Monster Jam trips, but there was, you know, riding down on the, on the Rhine River and there's a castle every 10 minutes and you're just on the, on the roof deck of this, this boat. And just drinking wine and breaking, you know, loaves of these uh, French bread. And here comes this, you know, 500, 700-year-old castle in ruin. And they tell you a bit of story if you, and with a translator, of course. But it, it's just exploring. And, and how blessed is that? It's, it's something that you're there to work. And then you get a little bit of free time and you try to make the best of it. We'll get to the story a little later. But what we did come to find out is the experiences of Chad Fortune and uh, through this experience, as we're talking about, especially the NFL Europe, and uh, the one and only Medusa through her wrestling days were a great help in the early Monster Jam trips over there when a lot of us weren't sure what we were doing. You guys, uh, especially you and Medusa, were, were, were very comfortable in figuring out where to go and you know, if we're all, I remember one time we're all standing at a train station looking at, like, what do we do now? And I think Medusa grabbed us and just tossed us some cabs and uh, was able to tell the, the cabbie where to take us and get us there. Uh, you know, those first experiences, it takes a while to figure it out, but you, you guys had a little bit of the lay of the land for us. So that was helpful. Yeah. The, uh, well, the language barrier, right? You get off an airplane yep. and, you know, you see, especially if you get off the airplane in Germany, the first person you see is somebody dressed in military outfit with a carrying a big gun so that's kind of like you don't mess around when you come into the country so there's a little bit of a warning but then there's a the language barrier and trying to look at some familiarity and even back in those days more so now as you know scott there's a burger king or there's a mcdonald's or somewhere kentucky fried chicken and there's a lot of u.s influence there but in the earlier days it wasn't so much and you're trying to figure out where you can eat um how, how do you communicate with anybody um english is now again and we've been here more recently there's a lot of english speaking but those days especially in my football days it was hit or miss if anybody would really even respond or talk to you with any type of english and of course you know being a kid trying to figure out what language you i knew <laughs> you know we were pretty spoiled here yeah, we, we, we can get that way, and it's almost like uh, uh, they kind of think of us as a little bit snobby because we think everybody should know English, but in their countries, you know, that's what always amazed me about uh, um, the Netherlands. That's the one that stood out to me because virtually everybody, you can walk up to two people talking Dutch to each other, 
And if you made an utterance in English, they would immediately pivot and start speaking English to you. It's like everybody there spoke English. And, but, but in a lot of countries, uh, and this one will come to mind immediately, uh, Poland, virtually no one spoke English. And so, yeah, so there's a, there's a little communication effort trying to figure, especially if you want to figure out something decent to eat. That's a, that's a good point right there. Yeah, and you know you're used to you're used to the kind of food to eat, right? Or, or American style food, or yeah. or American style beer, or something like that, just to try and, you know, Germany they drink the beer warm, and it has to wait seven minutes, and we're not used to that kind of thing. So it's a it's a it's an adventure, though. And I hope we never forget it. Yeah, um, in Spain one year, I, I know I don't speak Espanol, and and the. A uh, very, very entertaining and, and pleasant um, guys waiting on me at the uh, street cafe. Didn't speak a word of English, but he was able to teach me the word cerveza fria, so I didn't have to worry about the warm beer. <laughs> the, <laughs> right. the word the word fria became very important uh, in that right. conversation. So four or five years, you, you get the experience of, of NFL football, and you know most kids would dream about uh, about any of that. But there comes a point then. Uh, that, that, that ends and you transition to wrestling. Tell me about that. Okay. So, you know, first of all, you never think that something's going to end. Um, like I said, I was, I was felt like I was Superman. I was the epitome of health and could not get hurt. And I think a lot of people that are playing at that level believe that they cannot get hurt because you're in such physical shape. And it's a test, you know, these, on these one-on-one battles you have every day. Um, but I did, I was out, out of the league and then just kind of wondering what I was going to do next. Um, my best friend in college was Eric Watts. His father was cowboy Bill Watts. And at the time, um, he was the head booker, if not even the vice president of WCW in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, that's Ted Turner's WCW. And, uh, my buddy just said one day, and I'm, I'm back up in Indiana area. And he says, come on, come on to Georgia. We're going to be a tag team. I'm like, here we go. Let's, let's give it a shot. So I didn't know much about, about the wrestling business of, other than, you know, Ric Flair and Hogan back in the 80s. Um, I'm coming down to Georgia and had my tryout. I was comfortable with my tryout um, just because I was in physical shape and, you know, vertical jumps and that kind of stuff. So I kind of made that, but there's a psychological part of it um, when it comes to wrestling. So physical isn't anything. It's the psychological um, as you're running matches and things like that. But there's, uh, you know, developing your, your personalities and really going out there and being an entertainer. Uh, that's where you make your money. But anyways, I got in that, in it and we, we had a run uh, with WCW, uh, short time in the WWF or now the WWE. And then back to WCW. So it was a run, but it was a different lifestyle. Uh, one where, you know, I didn't talk, have to talk much when I was playing football. And you never show pain. You played through it. And you just did it. To now, now we're going to, we're, you're going to show your pain. You're going to show emotion. And I didn't buy into it for a while there. Um, until until they said, listen, you better start figuring this out or, you know, you're not going to make any money or you're just going to just be left in the dark. And then I started experimenting in matches. And that's when the world just kind of opened up um, to kind of, you know, 
based off of how I acted, I could get people to cheer, uh, to like what I was doing, to hate what I'm doing, to show emotions, to cry. And it was very powerful at that point. And it was just like, whoa, this is, this is something else. And the wrestling is just as physical as football. But now you add the entertainment part of it, the emotion. Now that's kind of the it's difficult, but it's also better around your body. You're not taking as much bumps, jumping off the top rope and killing yourself night after night. So now you're having fun and the crowd's interacting with you. Um, and that's where I learned that part. The Dusty Rhodes, um, uh, Blackjack Mulligan and Ole Anderson were my, were my teachers. And Terry Taylor, who is one of the head bookers and a, a great performer back in WWE, um, the list goes on just how I learn from all of these superstars. Yeah. That's, that's an interesting part uh, of that. You know, there's still the physicality, but you take that part in and, and you, you probably just talked um, on, on one who is a perfect example of the difference. And that would be Dusty Rhodes, especially later in, her, in his career. I mean, to be perfectly honest, he's, he was an overweight guy. But he yeah. could work the mic like nobody else, and he could make the crowd go go with him, or normally with him, because he was almost almost always, you know, the fan favorite. But uh, you know that that's that's a learned trait in a way. You got a natural gift, but you, you got to learn what what's going to push those buttons, right? Yeah, and in those days too, you, they worked the road. They were like three hundred days out of the year to make money, and it's a hard long road, and. And to save the body, they had to learn how to talk and to really get in the motion and to sell their, you know, gimmicks, right? We used to call them as uh, sell pictures and merchandise and T-shirts. And the way you can do that, only way you can do that is if the crowd is with you. And so that was, that was your promo is the night you're out there and you're having matches and, and being physical, but also the personality draws the people in. They love you or hate you or love to hate you. And so they can sell so they can make a living. And they had to back then. They didn't have the TV. The uh, when we started this show tonight, uh, I took a peek in the chat room. Um, one of our great friends, both of us, and a great supporter of this show, Dustin Brown, had already gotten in there, claiming to be. Uh, I hope I get this right. Techno two thousands number one fan was that the tag team? <sighs> yeah, yeah, that's there, great, there, right? there, there they are. I saw, I mean, Dustin will never let, you know, Dustin is one of the biggest super fans too. Not just me. He's a wrestling fan. He's a Monster Jam fan. Uh, a great friend of mine too as well. So he'll razz me. He'll play my entrance music. He'll he'll bring up the old silver <laughs> Techno Team 2000 shows and listen to my stories. And he has his own stories actually too. So it's uh, it, it's actually a compliment, but I know what he's trying to do. Uh, and, and one more thing from, from Dustin that I just picked up on. He claims you taught him to body slam him in Zurich, but you almost ended up on your head. That probably wasn't the smartest thing to do. Dustin's a little fellow compared to you. Well, you know, I did the same thing with Cole Bernard. Cole and I, you know, he was a crew guy for, uh, for a while with Adam and me, and uh, we had a lot more time. Dustin just didn't have the time to train with me. Um, to get get all the stuff he wanted to go, we, I was going to teach him the suplex and how to hold properly, and and I was I was kind of bragging that you know he could lift me up over his head if I'm helping him you know post up there and stuff, and 
I don't know if he got cocky or didn't get cocky or he wasn't waiting for me to, to help him out. And he just was up and then pushing me over. But man, what a lot of laughs. And Dustin, I just needed more time with you to, to, to learn to play. <laughs> yeah, that's some, that's some great stuff. You know, in those days, I'm, I'm glad you hit on it. You know, football, you have a season. Of course, you were playing almost year round because you were then going to Europe, but still. So one one thing that I think a lot of people realize about professional wrestling, but especially back in the days you're talking about, um, before it was as big as it is TV-wise now and pay-per-view-wise and all this stuff, and, and especially in the regional companies. Now you had the great advantage of pretty much WCW and WWF, the big boys, but um, like here in this region, it was a, a group called Mid-South Wrestling, which would eventually become the USWA. And uh, I'd become friends with, with Jerry Lawler for a while. Some things that we had we had worked on uh, through Renegades and Redman, and uh, he's another big Cleveland Browns fan. So we 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 hit it off right off the bat. But you know, in those days, those kind of guys, and I guess Jerry's probably one of the best paid in that group. But you know, they were they were literally they had a regional place they would go, and they would drive Tuesday night to Louisville, and Wednesday night they drive to everything was drive. They weren't on fancy airplanes. They weren't in first class, and then they'd be in Lexington, then they'd be in Indianapolis. And they're literally going six, seven nights most weeks, and they get like fifty bucks a night or hundred bucks a night. I mean, wow, what a lifestyle! That's 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 rough. I was on that loop. We did that loop. Um, it was it was a lot of fun. It was hard, and and you didn't get paid for the TV. So the one in Nashville, you you did the TVs, right? So, but you didn't get paid for that. That was your time to um, get over, get yourself over. They were doing you a favor, so that when you went into Evansville, or you went into Louisville, or you went into Memphis. Um, Memphis, yeah, that was kind of like uh, the other big ones with Nashville there too. Yeah. So when you got you got the call, you you uh, did the loop, and then next thing you know, I'm distracted by myself in this. <laughs> so I, we're, we're going to watch with you, Chad. I don't want to. Boom. Now, there's one I've never heard of. I hope, I hope yeah. you won this match, because I've never heard of Johnny Boone. You're twice his size. Yeah, it's just one of these. And then you had to pick this match, but it doesn't matter. So we'll just keep going. Look at Chad Fortune. Yeah, executive producer uh, Matt Isbell is in charge of the video content. So Josh isn't going to take the blame on this one if it's a bad one. <laughs> but it's just whatever. You know, and, and the thing is, I'm wondering how much training involved. Because a lot of this has to be obviously coordinated. But, you, you know, you talked about some of the greats that you got a chance to work with. But you go down there and, and you do well in the tryout. And clearly, I'm... There must have to be a training process and, and, and learning the moves and trying to develop what, what your own moves are going to be. Because not everybody does the same thing. No, exactly. I mean, you get the, the training part of it is basically learning that this basic moves that it's all done by the left. So that's the anticipation. But you can also, it's like a dance. Um, it's, a, it's a subtle communication of what we're going to do. And, you know, I. I'm not trying to expose anything in there, but there's just a, there's a feeling, you know what I can do, you know what I you can do, and then you just kind of run through a dance, and it makes make sense, and you, you throw in your entertainment, you throw in all your high spots and stuff there to win the crowd. It's working together, but also being physical and, and tough and, and, and have fun, have, have a blast, work the crowd. Yeah, because there was this day, and people would would. Um, um, and I remember the uh, the Jerry Lawler Andy Kaufman controversy, you know, when when they're on late night TV and all that, 
And, uh, because, you know, and Coffin was trying to play his role there, but that, that actually happened in mid South. Um, but he would, he would talk about it being fake and in, that would get, you know, Lawler's ire up because the point is there may be things that are scripted. It is entertainment, but you guys are taking shots and blows and, and, um, that's gotta be physically demanding. Oh, it absolutely is. And they don't, you know, there's a lot of secret language out there too, right? So you never, even when I started, you never let anybody know the business. And they didn't let me know the business, even during the tryouts. Um, they, you know, they purposely try to blow you up. They purposely try to make you quit. Um, just make sure that you're worthy, that you're tough enough to kind of stick up for the, the business because it's their business. And back then it was 100% real and it was 100% real for a lot of the guys out there, the old school guys that really did, you know, make it stiff and hard and, and, uh, you know, save the business. And that's what it was. Um, Jerry Lawler during those times. And I remember he was protecting the business because that was a, that was a cuss word to say fake. Um, and there was, there was a whole other language, Carney, right? So you would, you'd talk and there was nicknames for things and, you know, kayfabe, if there was anybody that didn't have any, you know, uh, knowledge of the business, it's kayfabe. Don't talk about it. You don't you don't talk about that business in front of other people. Um, yeah, it's pretty yeah, cool. Yeah, it, it, it is. And, you know, the other thing there that, that you know, was kind of hitting me as you were you were talking about that and, and you know, the fact that that you guys had what you're going to do, but it, it was so physically demanding. Um, you also, again, I want to get back to the idea that there's no off time. If you're going to be a professional wrestler, there's no off time. No, or, there wasn't any. They don't give you there, paid vacation, right? No, no. It was all, <laughs> they're not the big contracts back then. Um, my first year at WWF, you know, you had a 2% of the house, depending on where you were, you did, you basically did, uh, the TVs Monday night raw. You got paid per diem. Your hotel was paid for it per diem. And then you went out and you worked the next week based off of what you did on the TV to run your deal. That's when you got, if the, if the house did good, you got a percentage of the house. Is Ted Turner that put in the big contracts where now it was guaranteed. Um, and that's where, you know, the business is what it is. I mean, now there's just big time money, but Back in those days, you didn't work, and it wasn't big, big money back then. You had, if it was a good night for the promoter, then you got a good night. If you, the promoter did nothing, then you got nothing. And it's a lot of physical. I was doing a little, uh, just to refresh my memory on a couple of things, running through some research today on, uh, um, you, know, on you and uh, some of the things we're going to talk about tonight. And I came across one that I wanted to verify. Um, there's uh, it was online, but the claim was that Chad Fortune is actually the first singles wrestler to defeat Bill Goldberg, but since it was in a, a dark match and uh, it wasn't part of that TV streak, it, it kind of gotten forgotten. You, you beat Goldberg. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, well, Bill, Bill came in right after, well, after I did, and, um, I had already been through the tryouts and stuff like that. And I was working out at the school and Bill, I knew Bill from, uh, football. He, he played at Georgia. Uh, he played for the, uh, uh, Bulldogs. And then he also went to Atlanta 
and played. And we met a couple times on the field. He also played in uh, the Japan Bowl or something like that. It was a after after college deal. And then he played in the NFL Europe. So I've seen him a couple times over the years, and then uh, saw him again at the school. We I was working with him and training him a little bit here and there. And um, he'd had a couple matches, and, and really he was such a, a force that they didn't know what to do with him. So they just yeah. said, "Well, just just go on out there and, and beat this guy up for about two minutes, and then, you know, he had never lost anything at that point. They just threw him out, and, and these were even dark matches, um, and maybe a couple TV shows. But it was just because the office didn't know what to do with him. Well, we were at a, I think we were in Macon, Georgia, and we were at just a house show. And we had traveled up there together and hanging out. We'd come over some of his finishes and things like that. And we were, we were talking. And Arn Anderson was the booker. And he goes, uh, all right, Chad, you're going over tonight. Let's see what, see what Bill kind of character has. And, you know, is he going to be okay taking a, taking a loss? Well, I had known Bill for a while. And he, wasn't, he didn't have these, a big head at all. He was just kind of cool. And the wrestling business was different and an opportunity. Um, so Bill didn't know this, and then we he, we told Arn came back and told us both at the same time after he had already told me, and uh, this it was basically just about a test to make sure that Bill kind of had a, a decent head on his shoulder. And he said, "Chad, do whatever you want to do, and we'll sell it." And uh, I actually kicked out of his his uh, his spear. I kicked out of um, that that press slam thing. Uh, and, the one um, jack, jack, didn't they call it a jackhammer? I, I watched jack, it a little bit back then. Jackhammer. Yeah, we we I helped him uh, come up with the name and that kind of stuff. So I actually kicked out of it and then went up top rope and jumped off with a flying fist or something like that, knocked him, rolled him up real quick and slid out of the ring, and he, he took the loss. But we laughed about it later on, and I think because just having the persona he, he wanted to act like he was upset, but he wasn't upset at all. And later on, again, that story comes. He put it in his book uh, later on. And in fact, I've got another interview from, uh, I, I don't want to be, insult the guy by not remembering his name, but a guy in Australia wants to talk about that very same match here sometime this week. Wow. <laughs> so so uh, that is a little lord. And I kind of feel bad I hadn't picked it up. Of course, I'd. Uh, you know, it's not like I, you know, follow everything there. I was just looking and I saw that, found it interesting, especially through uh, the relationship with Goldberg that Monster Jam had and that we're going to develop a little more as we go through. Um, you know, the other thing is, if I remember right, though, um, it, I find it interesting that, that you use the term that um, they didn't know what to do with it. And because he was this big, huge, powerful man, if I, if I remember right, the first time anybody saw him, he was just Roddy Piper's like like entourage or bodyguard or something, right? Is that, is that, do I yeah. remember that right? Well, I think they did keep him under wraps for a little bit longer because they just didn't know what to do with him. And they didn't know whether to use him as a bodyguard or what. And we were coming up with some names. Um, but they had, they had Savage there. They had um, uh, Hulk. Hulkster was there. They've had some superstars. That, Sting and Luger. Luger was there, yeah. And and uh, uh, with the Hulk there, he kind of had free reigns to do whatever he want. And then here came this guy, Bill Goldberg, who was just full of just this energy and fired up. And in, which, which I think it 
some of the older guys might have forgotten about. But this was this young, this younger guy. I mean, back then, but um, could just rage, you know, and then control it. And what a great athlete could do a back handspring um, and not blow up, you know, not get tired. So they didn't know what to do. So they would just tell him to go out there and just, you know, kill him, beat him in two minutes. And then he did. And then the crowd started to, to love it. And then they started counting it. And then, you know, the older, the other guys wanted a piece of him. And who is going to be the first one to beat him, of course, you know, and when and how. So there was, there was some real thought about what was going to happen. And that was Bill Goldberg. Amazing stories. We're going to have some more of those with Chad Fortune. Got to take a quick break here and Chad will stick with us. Oh, and welcome to the Scott Douglas Media Channel. We stream live here every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time for the talk show Conversations with Scott Douglas, a long-form interview program featuring big-name guests from the world of Monster Jam, motorsports, live entertainment, and more. On each conversation, you will hear directly from the superstars and key behind-the-scenes players telling their unique stories and offering tips and insights into their specific industry. You can watch each show for free when the conversation streams live or watch a show anytime at your convenience by subscribing to the Scott Douglas Media Channel here on Twitch. It's easy to do. Just click on the About button on this page and scroll down to get your subscription started. Subscriptions are as low as $4.99 per month, and Amazon Prime members can use their complimentary subscription to any Twitch channel that they receive each month as one of their Amazon Prime benefits to use that to subscribe and enjoy all of the entertaining and informative conversations that we have right here, live, three times each week. And be sure to check out the website, scottdouglasmedia.com, for the lineup of scheduled guests that are coming up on Conversations, and for details on the production services that I can provide. Thanks for visiting the Scott Douglas Media Channel and tune in every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time when Conversations with Scott Douglas comes your way live. Welcome back to the conversation. The multifaceted and multi-talented Chad Fortune is tonight's industry insider. We've gone through the football industry and we've gone through the wrestling industry. And uh, you talked about getting into wrestling, kind of looking for what the next thing was going to be after, you know, football. Um, but now there's a kind of a, a merger that takes your next step and kind of blazes a trail for you when WCW makes an agreement uh, with the company that now is Monster Jam, um, or really were then too, but to, to bring certain of their athletes and certain of their biggest stars to brand trucks in, in the Monster Jam industry. And then along with that, here comes actually two of those um, people, Medusa and Chad Fortune, uh, along with not just putting names on trucks, but actually recognizable people. What do you remember? When did you first hear that that was going to happen? Tell us uh, a little bit what you can about, about those days and how it all came about. Yeah, I remember in uh, uh, being wrestling and we were, uh, I had I'd been kind of transitioning out of doing the live, live shows and doing in the house shows a lot of travel. I was, uh, I was married and I had my, my son was born and I didn't want to be on the road as much, but again, I just can't sit home uh, and collect a paycheck. So, um, I got in with the marketing department and uh, of course I was down at the school and I was help training guys that knew guys that would come in and, and that was okay. But, you know, doing them, doing marketing and production, 
I was the guy for pay-per-views, right? So if it was road wild, I'd be on the Harleys in the commercial, you know, riding the Harleys through the streets and promoting that event or uh, survivor series, riding on a big Clydesdale, Clydesdale dressed as a, as a knight and pulling a sword out. I mean, these were a lot of, a lot of fun gigs, a bash at the beach. I was the guy, you know, studded out and at the water and, you know, for the commercials. Um, nice. And, that was the guy, Mike Weber, um, that you may remember. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Mike was, was critical to the two because he, he was at monster jam at that time, but he had such a relationship with, with WCW cause that's where he came from. Yeah. And, um, and then the end we, we had a, a, a car, WCW had a, a Bush series car and I was one of the celebrity wrestlers that were assigned to work the crew during during the the events there so i was a tire carrier for the bush series car and i was literally running out in the middle of traffic changing not changing but carrying the tires you know changing the wedge and um uh oh wow actually a pit crew yeah they got the the, josh is putting up the picture right now (laughs) love it so can you imagine i mean running out there in talladega and everything's going you know as fast as it can be to a rumble and shaking the whole thing and i'm out there Cars stopping, you know, in the pits this far away. I'm jumping over the fenders to get to the other side. What a rush. Um, you had to be fast. So we that's what we did for a little bit. But that was all Mike Weber put that together. But, and when WCW was kind of going under, they were going to close the school. They were cutting budgets. They were going to sell out to WWE. Well, Mike had left and went to Pace Motorsports, which was the Monster Truck's early years. And um, I think it was a year later when he heard that everything was kind of going, falling apart at WCW, he called me up and said, what do you think about monster trucks? And I go, I don't know. What do you mean? <laughs> and um, at the time, I didn't know much. Bigfoot, Bigfoot in the movies. Um, and then he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, because everybody watched Roadhouse, right? Yeah. Yeah, and it, and I do remember we did have a we had the WCW Nitro machine at one of our live events in Georgia in Atlanta, and I remember going up to it and go, "Wow, this is this is pretty unbelievable." Little did I know that you know the story goes, I may I, I'm actually into that truck. So, um, but Mike Mike asked me, he goes, "Well, what do you think about you know you know driving a truck?" And I'm like, "I I don't know anything about it." He goes, "All right, well." We're gonna fly you to my or fly you to fly you to Minneapolis, and um, and uh, just to check out a show. So I'm living in Georgia at the time, and fly to Minneapolis, and they're at the Metrodome, and I'm like, all right, this is pretty cool, you know, first class tickets. I got a hotel suite there, and you know, Mike Wales is walking me through the pits. I sit in, uh, I meet Tom, and at the time he had the biggest truck where I could fit in. I sit in the truck. Um, before the show, I, I cut a po- promo. You might have, I don't even know if you were there, but I had to I cut probably a was. Uh, I did a lot of Metrodome shows in my day. You might have been having, you might have been busy, but they, I had to cut some promo for Charlie. And, um, and then I, they go up to the suites and I watch this thing and I'm like, what, what in the hell, heck is this all about? You know, Gravediggers, you remember they did the demolition derbies or had the, yep. This, it was time for freestyle. They couldn't get all the, the, the demolition trucks out of the way and Todd Frolic, I was trying to remember that name and Todd Frolic was driving Gravedigger at the time. And, uh, you know, Gravedigger goes out there and he's doing this incredible kind of 
freestyle going, what in the heck is all this? He actually runs over some of the, the demo cars. The demolition guys are pissed off because they're, you know, still got their motors in it. And they're like, it was just chaos. And I'm like, holy smokes. I think, and I went home and I go, oh, I don't know about this. And I think it was the next weekend. And, you know, the season for Monster Jam was going on. And I met Dennis in North Carolina in a bean field. Not the next weekend. It was during the week. And he had built some jumps. You know, cleared out the bean field and made a little track and a bunch of jumps. And I went there and they're pulling, they got an old grave digger out. Got, they're pulling the body out and they're taking measurements. And I'm like, what do you take the body off for? You go, well, when you crash, then it doesn't break the body. Like our $8,000 body. I'm like, wait a second, who's going to crash? What are, we, what are we getting ready to do here? So it was, it was pretty cool. <laughs> And Mike Wales and Dennis was out there, and Mike, or they had me do figure eights, you know, maybe three figure eights, and then they lined me up in front of this jump. And I've seen the jumps that they take some of the younger guys out now when they test. This was like three times bigger than that. Dennis, Dennis said to me later that you're either going to get this or you're going to go home. And because um, it was really it was his house, it was his business, and he was doing his part to protect it. And uh, I mean, I was scared out of my wits um, to do that because he, he goes, we stepped you in, you're parked, I got, there's no body, I'm sitting there, and when I drop my hand, you floor this sucker and you hit the jump. And that's what I did. It, it scared the little daylights out of me. I hit this jump, I see nothing but the sky, and then it's like suspended animation, and then I come back down this thing and it rebounds and bounces up. I'm shaking up, my neck is flopping all around. I think the neck collar popped out. We didn't, it was before they had the uh, Hans devices. Yep. And I'm like, holy hell. And I, you know, I come to and I'm like still rolling. And I like, take it around and line it up again. We kept doing jumps. And um, it was what a blast. But it was February and we were in North Carolina. And that night I was in the ocean letting the ice cold waves hit me in the back because I couldn't even turn my head. Oh, and wow. The next, the next day we did the same thing. Um, and again, I mean, this was the old beard seats that had, you know, five inches of foam, which turns out that that's the wrong thing to do. The coilover shocks, uh, no Hans devices back then. I had this two inch neck collar that And I had that, that same uh, WCW fire suit that you saw me in and uh, just had a blast. Um, I don't think I did it in there. I just had a blast doing it. Well, let's build you a truck and we'll, we'll work. Let's go. This is great. This is great. How, how, how was Dennis with you? Because the, the, he was the more than anybody else, and he was, he was pretty vocal at times that he wasn't really wild about the, the whole WCW trucks coming in and all that, but uh, was he cool with you? Um, at first, I mean, Dennis is a great guy no matter what, but it was definitely he was protective of the business. I mean, he built this jump, and I knew the reason why. I mean, I thought, is this, is this the kind of jump you guys are starting out at? I mean, it was a five-foot jump, and I have a picture of it somewhere um, that 
that it shot me so so high in the air and i i knew he was later on i knew he was trying to either say you're not tough enough to do this or maybe you will work out but fortunately i must pass this test but even later on you know when i would have conversations with dennis and he's a great personal guy but you know i said hey we should do this kind of a thing you know i could kind of do some heel stuff with you he goes nope he goes i'm a good guy in a bad truck and i mean he wasn't going to have any kind of the entertaining or the kind of just just talking back and forth type stuff no way he was very protective of how he was going to run monster jam on his side in grave digger so um yeah and, and one of the things um that i remember and this is going to be years before um when he would have met you we were in the because it goes it goes back before even raymond james stadium it was what they called the old sombrero the uh, the old tampa stadium and yeah. they were doing a, a promo for wrestlemania i believe was coming there you know maybe a month behind us and so the undertaker and paul bearer were there and they brought them into the locker room and they were going to do this this little uh stunt with Gravedigger. and at first dennis was just not having any of it he, he wasn't going to do it he wanted nothing to do with it you know he, he didn't want to offend his fans and a few of them took him aside and said you know hey listen this is the most popular guy now you know in wrestling the fans are going to cheer they're not they're not going to boo this and they finally talked him into it and so the undertaker with that that stick where he brings his hands up and the lights come up well here he brought his hands up and the red lights went on and the crowd yeah. went crazy but he, he he wasn't having any of it and then of course we all know that uh, he got when uh when when tom and goldberg were giving him a hard time and goldberg was on the microphone that dennis wasn't very happy so uh yeah he, he's very protective as you understand but that's why he's a uh, the first guy to go in the Monster Jam Hall of Fame. Um, you start out, and the first time we see you, you're not in a truck. They're doing a wrestling-style gig where you are uh, the mouthpiece for the NWO truck that Rob Nell was actually the driver of. Yeah. Um, well, <laughs> there he is. <laughs> yeah, they... Um... Well, the reason why I end up being the spokesman is because the truck that they were building for me, I couldn't fit in. Uh, it was um, it was going to be what it turned out to be Vet King, and it was me sitting flat, uh, I mean flat on the ground in a seat, and I was still too too tall uh, for the roll cage for this Vet King type style body, uh, which the concept would have been really great, but I end up having to in a couple different try try to fit and whatever i end up going in the nitro machine which was an old grave digger that had plenty of room uh just a short wheelbase so while that was all taking place and i was doing a little bit of kind of watching and learning uh we did started doing the nwo and that's where kind of just playing around with with tom tom was real receptive with all that kind of stuff and rob nell of course and he was a really good driver and had some good showings, which gave me more airtime, um, and then able to play around with you and uh, some of the other guys. It was, it was kind of, and, and you know, they had mixed reviews too. Um, sometimes the office didn't like any of the bad press that they were getting, like, oh, who's this guy, kind of thing. But it's all entertainment, right? So yeah. any press 
good for us. My recollection is those were the TNN Motor Madness days, and my recollection is that that the uh, the TV producers, you know, which were separate from the Monster Jam team, loved it. And and I know personally Dan Moriarty, who did a lot of those interviews, got a kick out of it because because he was he was always ready to to get with you or to get with Bill. And uh, you know, like you say, there's a lot of entertainment there. Uh, so it, it gets rolling, uh, but but you're 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 ended up in for the long haul, and so it's. Uh, uh, first it goes with the nitro machine and that wasn't around a whole long time, was it? It wasn't, it wasn't around. I mean, mainly because the truck wasn't up to what the other trucks were. It was a short wheelbase. Um, you know, it stood awfully tall, so it wasn't really making the turns that we were doing for the uh, bigger stadiums anyways. So again, in the middle of them, you know, piecing together a chassis for me to drive, um, you know, and then the sponsor came with Carl Malone and the fit of my mixed backgrounds with uh, football and wrestling and stuff like that. And Carl's, you know, basketball history kind of thing made a pretty good team uh, where I started with that. And then it came with a, a brand new truck and a brand new look. Yeah. And of course, that was a great timing for you because uh, the WCW trucks um, didn't last, but except those two, what, two or three years. Uh, obviously Medusa stayed around because Medusa owned, uh, owned her own, own name. So she should make her own deal. And, and we know what she did for years and years and years. Um, the timing for you ended up being that you were considered by everybody the Mike Wales is of the world. You mentioned him and everybody involved in a lot of these decisions as, uh, once everything started coming together and Carl, not just, I think if, if I remember right, Carl did like a driving experience and fell in love with it and, and maybe Mike Weber was another one of those genius marketing guys who was able to put together a deal to where his name would be on the truck. And you're right. Everybody said, well, who's more perfect to be the power forward than a guy who's big enough? The only guy we got big enough to be a power forward is Chad Fortune, maybe Tom, but he's already uh, got another deal going. Right. Yeah. I mean, and then again, too, the meeting of uh, Dennis and Tom or Dennis and uh, Carl you know, Carl was a superstar coming into Monster Jam with a you know a new truck, but you know Dennis is as he should be protecting it. This is his world now. You don't just come into my world, his world, and and you know think you're going to be a superstar here. But um, that was things I, I I always thought about with Dennis is that he was really a great sportsman and representative of protecting the Monster Jams and Monster trucks with the Gravedigger and and the likeness. But Carl was a great guy. I mean he. He really put his heart and soul in it. His wife Kay, you know, you know, took care of me, and you know, it was a, it was a great truck, and you know, just a just a couple years sponsor, but uh, we had a great time with it. Yeah, so in a couple years there, and I'm glad you mentioned Dennis one more time because I I think it's worth noting. Um, and and again, you know, we talk about it, everything he's done for the sport. But, I, I, you know, and the fans know what he's done on the track and they know what he does in the pit party and all the autographs he signs. But but you are absolutely right about, you know, this is his, his overall goal is to make sure that everybody. And again, because he came up in the day where it was hard to get good press and a lot of people wanted to, um, you know, kind of look at us as, as something that wasn't legitimate. So he was very protective. But but you're right. Once once you can get to. Uh, get through and show him that, that you love Monster Jam too. He he ended up liking Bill Goldberg, but boy, he sure didn't at first when 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 uh, Goldberg came into it. And I, I think he just 
you know, that it's that that protection of this industry that he has had such a big hand building, and he was going to make sure nobody's going to come in and, for lack of a better way to put it, make fun of it or belittle it or do anything negatively to impact it. And and to think that it was easy. I mean, I had to I had to work to earn the respect of, of exactly that, Dennis. You know, I came in from wrestling. I came in from football and didn't know a whole lot about this, you know, Monster Jam. And I made sure that I didn't just didn't fly in and and not know what I was doing and then just walk off. So I stayed out. I mean, Mike Wales kind of made sure that we were all kind of a family too. And when there was damage to the to the truck that I caused, that I'm there with the crew, you know, whether I'm working on it or not, that I'm there supporting and, you know, doing what I can. And that, uh, I think hopefully, well, I'm sure it did, went a long way with earning a lot of the respect from the guys who have been doing it. And in those days, again, they rode, they drove in their own rigs, they worked on their own trucks and they, they humped the road, you know, up and down all the, you know, 300 days out of the year too to, to make money and make monster jam what it is um it's a very different you know sport now um you know maybe for the better but the the history of where dennis and tom and gary porter and yourself all came from um needed to be respected especially by me in the very beginning so that i can earn my spot otherwise i wouldn't have lasted long no, and, and you earned it. Uh, one more thing before we go to the break, and then, then we're going to start talking superheroes, which I know a lot of people uh, are, are, are real keen on when we talk to you. But Because um, you mentioned the name a few times, and, and I just want to give a couple of thoughts with uh, the second Hall of Fame class being announced in Orlando this weekend of Gary Porter and Mike Wales. We had Gary on the show last night. He had some great Mike Wales stories, but you've already mentioned Mike several times. Mike's influence, absolutely uh, he's a, he's a no brainer hall of famer. Just a few thoughts you have about Mike and, and your time with him. Yeah, Mike, I mean, I think I felt like he protected me, you know, when I first started in, you know, he gave me some of the inside tips. He, you know, introduced me to some of the key guys, the, the, the Toms and the sea socks and the, uh, uh, you know, the older guys, the Porters and, and Mints and the old guys to kind of learn and, and talk to, to get pointers, you know, how is you take the dirt? How are you supposed to, the Pablo's, you know, how to, how to hit the cars, you know, with no dirt and, uh, and kind of survive it, uh, crash courses. Um, I, I owe a lot to Mike Wales and, and what a great guy. Yeah, absolutely. And look forward to, uh, to uh, seeing his name going to the Hall of Fame here. Hopefully it'll be sometime this year is what they're talking about for the 2021 class of Gary Porter and, and Mike Wales. So again, as already promised, we're going to talk Monster Jam superheroes because this guy was all about them. And, uh, but we got to take a quick break before we do that. Thanks for joining us on the conversation tonight. Chad Fortune's with us. Let's get right back to it. And uh, it talked about the... The, the very cool power forward truck. Love the relationship. Uh, a lot of respect for Carl Malone, and that was great. Uh, but again, he was only around for a couple of years, and, and then we go to Superman, right? That's the next step? Yeah, yeah. What did, you, what did you think when that opportunity came up? Because again, here we go. You know, Chad Fortune, the biggest guy, fits this image, and, and you went with it more than that. Not that you try to become Superman, but, but you did want to make sure that a kid watching that truck saw you as Superman in the role, right? Well, exactly. I mean, it was a great opportunity, and 
if Superman was going to have a vehicle, if there was a real Superman out there, then if he was going to have a real vehicle, why wouldn't it be exactly what you see right there on that screen? Is a Superman truck, you know, doing whatever humanly possible. I mean, this is about as close to being a real Superman or superhero when you can jump 30 feet in the air and go over 100 miles an hour and, and you know, crush and smash and come out with no, no issues. So, what, what a, you know, maybe I was born to do that, it just certainly felt that way, and I felt a responsibility to kind of represent it as both, you know, the driver and a create a kind of image that would be fun and, you know, kid and family friendly. And, you know, people have different, um, um, some people would have different things. You know, Tom did the wing walk years and years ago and things like that. Um, you in this persona then just creeped, kind of took a little page, I think, from, from back where you came from and, and from the Hogan type of deals where you would do this pose and 50,000 people would be clicking their cameras. Did, did you expect that people would, would really react to that? Even if your run wasn't great, and when it was great, they were going crazy. But even if you struggle a little bit, you generally still get out and give them the pose and let them get that photo out. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, everybody, you know, guys or the girls or whoever was driving, try to come up with something. They had to have their special trick or whatever they would kind of be kind of known for. Um, you know, as I'm trying to learn and figure out the sport and, and stuff, I was, I was hired in a way because I came from the entertainment business. And so I'd better use that for sure in any way I can. And with a Superman truck, a superhero truck, um, I did. I, I tried to just do the best I could and go, okay, well, if Superman's going to do it, he's going to go to the biggest pile and he's going to get out and he's going to do that pose. And, you know, sometimes it, was, it wasn't always the most confident person to go out there and feeling like I'm in my underwear and posing in front of there. But the reaction from the crowd, good run, bad run, on the biggest pile. And, and I got to tell you, and this is why I thanked you in your Hall of Fame video, was you wholeheartedly that that up played that up too for me. The anticipation of where it was going and what was building. You knew that I was going to go into song and deal. And you you did this but the the truck another pop that was created of the anticipation and, and that's what made it all come together. It was really a lot of fun. Um, it was a lot of fun doing Superman and Captain America. Well, and, and, and from my perspective as an announcer or a host or a television broadcaster, um, it, it, in one way, it was making my job easier because, uh, as I've said many times, um, you know, I knew we had a rivalry with Tom and Dennis, and, and they were going to get their due, but I always walked in thinking that the other 14 trucks or 12 trucks or 10 trucks that were in that field, you know, it was just as important that I make them exactly at that same level because they were all getting fans. And, and that's why I always loved about world finals. Everybody had their groups, you know, it was really cool. And so that kind of gave me something to set up and let people go. And then, like you say, you would then go uh, to captain America and it was similar, but now you had the shield, which made it cool and, and, uh, and a little bit different. 
Yeah, you know, and I didn't want to leave Superman. I go, I thought, yeah, I'm, I'm fine with Superman. This, this has been good to me. I think I was born to play Superman or be Superman or, or drive this truck. I don't think that I really wanted to go. And I think with a little bit of persuasion, because the sponsorship was transitioning out of the, the Warner Brothers and into more Marvel, then they go, and it came with another new truck. So that C-17 Superman was, you know, an older truck. And there were some other models. And, and by the way, because nobody was able to drive my truck with, because of the way the seat and everything was configured. So it wasn't like anybody was seeing that it was wearing and tearing and that C-17 was not. And then we jumped to C-55. I mean, that's how many trucks came before I got into a new truck. And it was a lower motor. It was, it was faster. I mean, the suspension was all set up better. So I got a brand new truck and a new image. And I wondered if I could create, you know, that image I did with Superman into Captain America. And it was a challenge. And, and uh, I think that was, that was just as equally as fun. You know, I had props. I had the, the shield. And then at the time, we could run up into the, the, state, the stands, and I'd pick out one of the kids and throw them on my shoulder, and we'd all be on the spotlight. And it, but again, I mean, how, how blessed am I to have two unbelievable superhero trucks to be you know, piloting? Yeah, and um, I remember on a European tour in the, in the, the Superman days, and um, I don't know, it may have been Robert Black and some others, probably a lot of people involved in the, in the creative process, but I'm sure you were right there with it. And I don't know if this is something they would have done here, but it, it certainly would work in bringing a new audience and, and, and the way we did some things in Europe that would be a little bit different than you might do in the United States. And, and literally an opening segment with you in a suit and reading a newspaper and a spotlight on you walking across the track and, and all of a sudden you realize something going on, you rip open the suit and it's got the big S underneath of it. And, and they just went nuts. But, you know, that was, that was cool stuff. And it was bringing more people into what we were doing. Yeah. It, again, that was so much fun. And, and, uh, you know, back here in the States, we were on the, the, the tours that were always being televised. So there was not a whole lot of time to do, a lot of things that maybe we might have been able to think about. But in Europe, we had more time. It wasn't televised. It was a live crowd. And then we just start brainstorming. And we came up with this idea, you know, in Arnhem Holland. And, I mean, I don't know if we have time for a story, but I'll tell. Just yeah, no, we do. Yeah, we do. <laughs> but we did that. We I did it in a couple couple of shows before, and we were just kind of playing around a little bit more. And, and the idea was is that I come out, you know, in a suit, uh, a white shirt, tie, you know, black pants, uh, wearing the glasses, and I'm reading a newspaper, just kind of walking under spotlight. It's completely dark, and um, all of a sudden, the Superman, you know, da, 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 you know, starts coming on, and I, I kind of hear this. I hear something, right? I don't know what's going on. I put down the paper real quick, and then the music starts to bust. And I pull off the shirt, and the Superman costumes under i rip the glasses off i start running toward where the truck is well then then at that point the truck is supposed to come out under spotlight you know do a nice lap and and i'll be you know at the top of the hill in full superman gear and uh you know doing the pose under spotlight and the trucks underneath and it's really kind of a cool like segue well we did this a couple times and it was uh you know they had reconfigured the track and they had put in my path 
a couple of vans stacks. So I'm, I go out there with the newspaper and I hear the, the music and I rip the shirt open and I, you know, reveal this ass and pull my glass and I start running in the direction under spots. I can't see anything. I just know the direction. Well, as it turns out, there was a van sitting right in my path and I couldn't really see until the last minute. And I swerve. Well, people will, will, will say about, talk about it today, you know, guys like Frank Kremel and, you know, Mike Wales, God bless his soul, and Robert Blacks and some of the other guys that were in the back will think that I, I fell. Well, really, with my he- sense of hearing, I thought I heard a baby crying. So <laughs> I just did a quick, quick little somersault to make sure that there was nothing underneath the van. Nope, everything was good. And then continue running. Well, the truth of the matter is I did. I, I, I ran and had to swerve and tripped over some dirt face first into the dirt and ripped my pants and scarred up my knee, got back up and I got back to where I would change into the next thing, climb up the ladder. And, you know, there's some guys, Mike Wales is back there. Some of the other tech staff are there to help me change, you know, put, get my shoes and stuff. They are laughing all on the floor, just laughing so hard. I'm cussing them out. I'm, I'm hurt. My knee's hurting. I got so much time before the truck is, you know, going to be right there, and I got to be on the truck, you know, dressed and on top of this pile with, you know, full garb. And nobody is is helping. They're laughing, dying laughing, and I'm just so angry and hurt. Um, but that that's one of the best stories. I mean, these things that we could do in Europe and the things that we we uh, we just experimented. And the, the end result is the crowd is having a great time. We're having a great time. And it's just great shows, great fun. I, I'm glad you volunteered to go there because I, was, uh, I wasn't sure if I was going to ask you about that. But I was there, obviously, and remember that. And the other thing about anything that happened in Arnhem Holland is, you know, they had gotten to calling that Europe's version of a world finals because, um, you know, they would, there's the only place – well, now on the stadium tour, they're doing it all the time because of the necessity of, of the way the world is. But, you know, back then, to, to think of doing three stadium shows on a floor that size um, in two days was just crazy. And the, the, the pit, the crews, the technicians uh, worked so hard because the crowds were so big and you guys were throwing it down. And you would, you know, go crazy on a Saturday afternoon. Those guys would have to fix everything. We'd come out. Well, Saturday night crowd would be good. And then everything's tore up. Well, Sunday was going to be the big, you know, if the other two weren't sold out, Sunday would be because Sunday was huge over there. And, you know, these poor guys are, you know, we're working. Well, I don't know how they're getting any sleep. You know, RL and that team, you know, God bless them for keeping that thing going. But Arnhem was a big deal. And so, so yeah, you, uh, you definitely have a, had a big crowd for that moment. And uh, <laughs> I appreciate you telling that story because there, there are quite a few of them yeah. back in. Well, um, even then. Uh, I was going to say, even then, the you know the technology and the trucks and the parts were not were not that strong, and so we would break parts in the in the ramps, and you know they were doing monster jam type you know tracks in those days that were pretty difficult. So yeah, I mean we would break parts and and then have to do a whole you know in between shows the the crew were killing themselves, drivers were beat up, but you know that we were on a high the whole time. We were we were so much adrenaline. And, you know, sore on the way home, but we didn't know about it until three days after. Now, 
this seems like a good time because we'll, 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 we've got one more segment here, and, and that's where I, I really want to get into you know some some talk about Soldier Fortune a little bit. But you know the um, um, most or the international events you were doing were, were the superhero type. Um, you know, Superman. I guess Captain America went over to a few places. Um, it's kind of full circle. You you know you you got your first experiences there in football, but now all of a sudden, Monster Jam going all all over the world, and and I got to believe that's an experience that that that's very special to you. Yeah, I mean, are you kidding me? To be able to take you know one playing football over there, I did you know wrestle in Mexico and in Germany once or twice too for for that, and then now to play football, I mean to play uh, or play monster trucks, play Monster Jam. Um, you know, who'd have thought? We're all over the world, and I do remember the first couple shows and the the expressions on on fans that haven't ever seen it uh it's an american type thing bigger and and more extreme and these trucks come rolling out and just to look at the kids and the expression on on fans face and i know you can see this too is you know you were there with us um it was just pretty amazing and to educate you know other people about what we did it was it was an honor for us and then to to talk with them with the autographs it was or, or communicate the best we could but you could tell i mean nothing you know translates best than than smiles and laughter yeah no doubt about that and and the, the thing is that it was so different for them i remember having to coach um the announcer in whatever language it would be and we got to where once we saw what was happening we would know going in to start with this line, but we literally would have to tell the fans in the pit party that the drivers are here. They want you to come up. You know, they want to take a picture with you, get an autograph, because in some of the cultures, you know, they would never go up to a performer or a star who was there. And they were, you know, they were in awe and just even getting them going there. And then once they did, you know, they were just like every other fan in this country, you know? Yeah, it sure was. And I remember our first time in Antwerp where there was nobody clapping nobody like making any noise and it was i think the announcers or joe Lowe might have had to say yes please go wild do whatever you want to and we'd come out for bows and you know i think by the end of the weekend they were jumping around and having a great time because you know this is what we did in these events it was just just really great to watch the transitions you know and and that's another thing where you being able to add some extra personality um, and again, the Superman truck will, will come to mind by, you know, we talked about the entrance, but you were doing the poses over there too. And, and, and getting, you know, those kind of, uh, of reactions that you would get in this country, you know, that kind of stuff's universal. It, it doesn't have to have a, a language or, or the, uh, Dutch speaking announcer didn't have to set it up as soon as they, you know, you got out and did it, it worked. Yeah. It, and that's one of the things too, when we started out doing arenas. You know, if I'm standing on the truck and there's spotlights on there, I can see the eyes. And we could do that when we're in arenas, too. And even in some of the stadiums where you can literally see the smiles and the eyes and, and the connections that you can make in, in an in a atmosphere, even a stadium or arena that size. Um, that's what I that's what I kind of missed about Monster Jam is that human connection. Uh, having the, you know, doing a run or you have a rollover or something like that, you stayed out and the TV stayed on. You came out to meet us. We're full of adrenaline. As, as dizzy as we may be, you direct us into the right 
place where the camera is so everyone can see us, shake off the busyness so into an interview live. Um, and then, you know, the fans really had a chance to connect with us. Um, it, that's what I missed about Monster Jam. Yeah, and, you know, and, and learning that you could do things visually even if you didn't speak the language and, and to get the reaction and can continue to develop. But a lot of it, you know, you had right off the bat. I mean, I remember some of the tours as the years would go on uh, and Morgan Kane, who just played his natural love for soccer and the love for soccer in Europe. And now he had to win to pull this off, but when he would win in some of these stadiums, and I, I want to say it was either Barcelona or Madrid, but he opened that shirt up and he had, he had the uh, Atletico Madrid or the FC Barcelona shirt, whatever it was. I mean, you thought the roof was coming off the place, but it didn't have a roof. Those kind of <laughs> things, those kind of things work, and you don't have to. You don't have to have the language done to do that. That's what's cool. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, again, we're we're a long way from you with the microphone, and we're just getting out of the truck. That's our. That was my way, at least, of communicating with the fans: is to to just stand up there, look the crowd, do a pose, and have that the connection, the humanness. Um, and again, this, you know, the fans wanted, wanted to be a part of it. And with the autograph sessions and the pit parties and my pose up at the end, just kind of helped give me that connection with the, these families and friends. And it was just, just fantastic experience. Yeah, it sure was. Well, I don't know that there's ever been anybody. I mean, we know the, uh, the Frank Gremmels of the world drove, what do we determine? It was 29 or 30 trucks. Um, but a lot of them may not have been the best fit in the world for him. And some of them were great fits. I'm not sure there's ever been a driver who has just always seemed to just have a perfect fit in the truck. And, uh, maybe just as perfect was that final one that we're going to get to after our final break. Quick reminder, uh, again, conversations coming up. We're not done for the week tomorrow night, eight o'clock guest will be CVH. He's in the house. Carl Van Horn will be here. Chad Tingler joining us next Tuesday. So some great conversations are coming up. And uh, I'll give you a little tease right now. Uh, Wednesday, I've still got to get the I's and the T's dotted, but I'll release it early. A week from tomorrow night, former Bigfoot driver Eric Meager will be my guest in the conversation. I'm really looking forward to a, a lot of great history. And Eric's got a, a long career, not only on the wheel, but and some of the things that have uh, helped to push the sport forward. So looking forward to having Eric on uh, a week from tomorrow night. And again, renew the subscriptions. If you haven't already done so, uh, that's the thing that keeps us going. And what's going to keep us going tonight is more with Chad Fortune right after this.
welcome to the Scott Douglas Media Channel. We stream live here every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time for the talk show Conversations with Scott Douglas, a long-form interview program featuring big-name guests from the world of Monster Jam, motorsports, live entertainment, and more. On each conversation, you will hear directly from the superstars and key behind-the-scenes players telling their unique stories and offering tips and insights into their specific industry. You can watch each show for free when the conversation streams live or watch a show anytime at your convenience by subscribing to the Scott Douglas Media Channel here on Twitch. It's easy to do. Just click on the About button on this page and scroll down to get your subscription started. Subscriptions are as low as $4.99 per month, and Amazon Prime members can use their complimentary subscription to any Twitch channel that they receive each month as one of their Amazon Prime benefits to use that to subscribe and enjoy all of the entertaining and informative conversations that we have right here, live, three times each week. And be sure to check out the website, scottdouglasmedia.com, for the lineup of scheduled guests that are coming up on Conversations, and for details on the production services that I can provide. Thanks for visiting the Scott Douglas Media Channel and tune in every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time when Conversations with Scott Douglas comes your way live. Boy, this time is flying by. I just got a little bit of time left with Chad Fortune. It's so many great stories tonight. But as I teased going into the break, Chad, and when you, when you go down the list, you know, you came from, from wrestling, so WCW Nitro, what a great fit. You know, you were the only guy who was a really a power forward with the Carl Malone deal coming through. You, you had the superhero uh, persona, but then Soldier Fortune comes in. And again, not just because your last name is Fortune. What a perfect fit. And I know you enjoyed the fact that, that the the PR folks and, and, and you personally really tied that into military support everywhere we went. And that was really cool. Yeah, it, that's one of the things I was most proud of. And I was, I was, um, very, I was very happy that management actually kind of allowed this to happen uh, and bought into what what I thought was what I wanted to do. Um, I knew that you know DC or not DC, but the Marvel was kind of going to go away, and the Captain America truck was going to go away, and I kind of presented, made a whole thing, a present presentation about what idea I would like to do next. And I knew that I think there was some kind of a contest about what people would want to see, which was some type of a military. So right away, there was something there. Um, the concept itself, one, the Soldier Fortune, was actually a, a wrestling gimmick that I had um, at WCW that didn't take off. And there was another presentation with that, but it was like Soldier of Fortune. It was like the unknown Soldier of Fortune was kind of, and you know, do that. So I kind of presented it in that way. Here's a name. Here's the idea. Military tribute to you know men and women who fight for our country, but also the families and the veterans, you know, that are are still are come back that go to our events that you know aren't really called so much because it's you know they're not walking around in their their uh, uniforms or anything. They're retired. So I just wanted to kind of do the tribute every time you know, during intros or during interviews, the call, call to home, come hang out with us, especially at the world finals, sit in the little compound. This is kind of an honor, have some water. It's hot out, tell us some stories and um, is really to kind of give back. I had such a fortunate career, able to play, you know, these cartoon superheroes. And now 
I wanted to honor the real heroes, the, the men and women who really keep us safe. And now we're at Monster Jam. They're there. I want to recognize them. And it, the spotlight's off me and on them. Yeah, and the, the reaction, um, it seemed like right off the bat it, it, it clicked. Um, even what, you know, some of the things that they could arrange, I mean, the PR team had felt is great. And so they would have some special things. But, but I remember watching, you know, you just see guys you know, just in your autograph line and, and they'd come up and, and, and they'd be proud of that truck and, and thank you for doing it. And like you instantly had teammates, you know? Yeah, exactly. And it, and it had a storyline, you know, and, and, you know, Scott, I've been kind of preaching this before. Gravedigger has a storyline. Gravedigger is Gravedigger, uh, a, a good guy in a bad truck. It came from North Carolina. I'll, you know, I'll take this truck and I'll, you know, dig you a grave. You know, the other ones, it just didn't seem like we, we really gave storylines to some of the other ones. And there might be there, but I don't know. But I wanted this one to have a background. I wanted this to be a real tribute truck, not an affiliation where it's, it's Marine or Army or Navy. It's all armed forces and it's all veterans and it's all current and families so that they, they can all feel part of it. I've got, and the, and the stories that came along to me, it's not me talking about myself or anything. It's, it's them coming in and say, ask, I have a son who's over in Afghanistan right now, or this is my husband. He spent two tours of, you know, you know, wherever he was at. And that was what was so special about it is that they're not talking about, people aren't coming to talk about me. They're calling to like talk about themselves and thank you for the truck. It was really great. Yeah, and, and then it could also go to where we all love to go, and that's, you know, the people that, that we want to say a special thank you and honor to, like groups like Wounded Warriors that, that would always be a part of it, especially at World Finals. And I know you were a part of that, too. Yeah, I mean, what a great group. And I would always host them at, at the pit party in their own autograph line. And to watch them... You know, and I I set myself away from them, not because I thought myself being special, is that more so that they would be special. They were on their own table. They were signing the autographs. They had their stories, and they got their, their personal thank yous from the crowd or the, the fans that came by and the pictures. And they got to feel some of the things that I got to feel from our fans, the love. And now they're getting the thank yous for them. And, and, you know, these were the wounded warriors that sacrificed, you know, life and limb for us. Uh, again, I was so proud. And you guys, you as announcers to, to shine them out as well. And the call to home, especially in the world finals, come on, have some water with us, talk about it, see some of the vehicles that we have. And, um, you know, it's, it's soldier fortune, which is kind of a universal name, but, it's more of a, a military tribute. That's it. Yeah, and wow, how, how wonderful that has been. You know, again, we're about out of time. Uh, I did I did want to mention real quickly, though, um, because like, people are so used to seeing you in front of the camera. You've actually had, uh, you know, several years, you know, behind the scenes, a lot of it with international logistics. And, and uh, you know, so, so you've had, it's not just showing up on Friday night to drive a truck. You, you've been... Ever since you uh, kind of made the trip across from from the wrestling world and slowly got into Monster Jam, it's become it be, it had become your life, right? It, yeah, it sure has. I mean, one, I was the athlete, you know, playing football, and I was an athlete playing uh, or doing professional wrestling. But 
when I went to Monster Jam, I said, this is all great. This is fantastic. But what's the plan B? You know, I wanted to be part of the company all around. And I was able to, you know, secure a position as, uh, you know, a director of international operations and uh, logistics. And I helped ship trucks all over the world, Japan, you know, Middle East, Australia, just just everywhere. And what a what a ride it's been, which is kind of even tying into what I'm doing now. I form my own company now. It's a fitness uh, management company that, you know, uh, contracts with some of the sporting goods and running crews to deliver and assemble sporting equipment and you know, all this, you never know what, what life is going to take you, but it's, it's a heck of a ride. Yeah, it really is. And I, and I guess that's the, uh, the final thing. So, um, when you, you look back and, and, you know, you're still a young man, you still got a whole lot, a lot more to go, but, um, man, what a, what a book you've had of life so far, you know, and there's more to write. Well, yeah, I mean, you're only, I don't even know what the saying is anymore. So it's, you, you just keep on hustling. The, the life that we, we were fortunate to have doesn't end. I mean, you have your own podcast and you've got many things that you're going to conquer in this world. Um, you know, I encourage anybody out there that it's never over. You just keep on pushing and it, it, it seems to come. So from football comes right into wrestling, which I had no dreams of ever becoming, but it just happened. And Monster Jam came right in after that. And now, you know, COVID shuts down entertainment. And so what are you going to do? You just you just push forward. And, you know, I formed this uh, Fortune Fitness, you know, Incorporated, you know, and there's just no end to it. I'm back full circle to, you know, working with athletes, working with the older generation, speed and agility and first responders. Um you know, working with fitness equipment, uh, with a uh, delivery and assembly business, and you know, future will start selling some fitness equipment. But you just keep on plugging away, and what a ride! If you if you're if you're willing to work for it and look look forward and be positive, you know, there'll be some up and downs. It's not easy, but it's rock and roll, and keep going. Yeah, that and uh, Chad, that's that's exactly what I'd expect from you. Is that that last answer, you know, absolutely perfect about you know you just keep pushing through and 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 best of luck on the Fortune Fitness. That that's uh, that sounds very cool. It sounds like you're off to a great start with it. Well, I'm having a lot of fun with it. Uh, I got a lot of ideas and a lot of creativity. You know, of course, you learn it from you know history of what we've done together. So it's just using what I've learned and and going forward and doing the things I love. Chad, it's, I, I wish we had more time. I feel like we'd go on forever, but uh, so many great stories, and you and I have been up and down so many roads together. It's, it's always been a thrill, and, and like you said, it, it's, this almost felt like uh, you know one of those chats we used to have you know, after the event about, you know, about ideas, about how we could make it better and just kind of doing it again here. So I just want to thank you for coming on and tell how much I enjoyed the conversation and wish you the best of luck with Fortune Fitness. Oh, thank you so much, Scott. Scott Douglas, Hall of Famer. Um, they can never take that away from you, buddy. It's uh, you deserve it. You're an unbelievable man and an entertainer yourself, and it is. It's just like being in the airport on the way home from the events and just reminiscing and going over old times again. So, thank you for having me on. It was a blast, Chad Fortune, tonight's guest. And tomorrow night, we're coming right back with another conversation. 8 o'clock, the man that everybody knows is CBH. Carl Van Horn will be here. 
Hope you will be as well when the conversation continues. Oh, don't let me forget to say that the conversation is a presentation of Scott Douglas Media. Find me at scottdouglasmedia.com. Big thanks to executive producer Matt Isbell and his company, Overdrive Reality Productions. And find them at overdrivereality.com if you're looking at the website, Phil. They did mine. They do a great job. And, of course, 8-Bit Motorsports is always going to keep you up on what's happening in Monster Jam and other breaking news. That's my producer, Josh Lee, and I appreciate his great efforts again tonight. See you tomorrow night when the conversation continues.